Now, over 60 years ago today, uh, about uh, February 7, 1964 is what it is, uh, South Korea began its relations with Kenya among uh, the many new relationships developing at that time with these post-colonial countries. Now, big question is, how did South Korea's position affect its relations with African countries and other nations around the globe? And as the colonization broke apart empires uh, in the aftermath of the 1945, what did this mean for Asian countries, especially South Korea, and what was the Cold War context that both liberated and constrained many of these countries? To answer all that and more, joining us in the studio for the latest in Made in Korea is Professor John DeMoya from Seoul National University. Professor DeMoya, good to see you once again. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, just quick question. I know uh, because Lunar New Year's means uh, traveling home, but uh, sure, people like you and I, uh, traveling means going home means New York and Philadelphia, from what I understand, right? Yes. I, I have to ask you, since you're a, a true uh, Philadelphia uh, person, uh, King Pats or Genos? <laughs> um, I think I know enough from growing up in Philadelphia to say that to pick either one of those is enormously problematic. So as difficult as it is, I will either say some version of both or neither because, <laughs> no, to, to weigh down... Neither. To weigh, no, what I mean is that, that they're equally valid. Okay. To weigh in on that um, will get me in trouble uh, back home in multiple ways. <laughs> We're referring to uh, some of the, the biggest uh, Philly cheesesteak franchises. In South Philly, yeah. Yeah, and there's always been a big controversy in this. By the way, big basketball fan. I always talk basketball after work. I wish we had time to talk basketball, but we're not going to do that. We're going to be talking about the spotlight <laughs> relations uh, with South Korea and Kenya, but let's go from the very start here. Uh, when exactly did South Korea and Kenya begin this bilateral relations? Sure. Uh, just about 60 years ago, this week, if I have the dates correct, uh, in 1964, uh, Yomo Kenyatta's uh, relatively new Kenya decolonizing officially uh, established its foreign relations with uh, Park Chung-hee, South Korea. This is one of several relationships uh, South Korea is making with post-colonial African countries. And it's really just kind of interesting for a variety of reasons to think about how and why that is. Um, I mean, it's not just simply about establishing relations, although that's obviously the major point. But sure. what this is really about, um, and many people have argued this, is about the North Korean-South Korean competition. Um, the more friends you have as more countries decolonize at this time, particularly if they recognize you exclusively, mm -hmm. you are the only Korea. We don't talk to those other guys from that <laughs> other Korea. If you can get countries to do that and reciprocate, uh, we will, you know, we will recognize you in the UN. You can both help each other in an increasingly competitive political environment in forums like the UN. You can help each other. And as we'll talk in just a moment, South Korea will, for, with some of these countries in exchange for getting exclusive recognition, offer the very first beginnings of its uh, a few doctors, maybe a, an ambulance or two. And this becomes the beginnings of what is now today a, a multi-million dollar industry with Koika, but what was then a very small uh, policy of development assistance to African countries. So basically from the start, you're, you're, you got South Korea under the Park Jung-hee administration just trying to have as many allies as possible. Yeah, uh, I, th and, I think that's a safe statement. Yeah, Right. And then, you know, despite whatever uh, economic state that the country has, 
and we can kind of deal with that later on. But what kind of relationship was it in the beginning? And uh, again, aside from the fact that, again, South Korea just seems to be wanting, you know, you're an ally and, uh, you know, we're trying to get as many allies as sure, possible. Sure. North Korea, uh, when they, like you said, when they say Korea, they're going to think automatically South Korea. Exactly. Why establish diplomatic relations? Oh, oh, sure. Um, okay, any number of reasons. Um, if South Korea is independent in 1948 and in 64 is only technically, you know, following not Korean history, but South Korean history, sure. less than two decades old, the country is still very much uh, recovering from the Korean War. It's only been a decade. Um, is still very much rebuilding its relationships, uh, ties, uh, figuring out where it fits in the world as opposed to where it was 20 years earlier as part of Japanese empire. So that these new relationships are, right, not just about diplomacy, but in theory, albeit on a small scale, um, potentially new markets for the very first South Korean exports, and more importantly, in the other direction, potentially new places to tap for raw materials. Mm. Now, more of that stuff is coming from Southeast Asia, which is closer. Right. But you're thinking ahead to, yeah, what can we sell these guys? What can we get from them? Um, and diversify the portfolio. Absolutely. How can we build this relationship into something that is beneficial for both of us? So uh, let's talk about then in the beginning, what type of relationship it was between South Korea and Kenya. I mean, was it smooth sailing? Was everything uh, good to go from the start? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I honestly don't know in terms of the politics, but I'll tell you the one thing I do know, which is I've already hinted at, and it's the other reason Kenya is really important. Kenya will become one of uh, South Korea's very first um, uh, ODA uh, recipients in a couple, yeah. in a particular way. Um, what South Korea had been doing in the 50s is what the United States called third country training was sending Koreans primarily to the United States, but also sometimes to the Philippines and Taiwan, where they would learn as a, you know, quote unquote, developing country. Kenya is the first country to come the other way around. South Korea has persuaded USAID to pay for this. And Kenyans, I think it's eight of them, will come to South Korea in 64 for agricultural training. Um, I imagine this is, you know, South Korea's rural expertise and kind of village expertise, right, right, right. things like that. But so um, in a really weird, interesting way, South Korea very early on is now putting itself in the position of, look, we've been learning for almost a decade after the Korean War. We are still very much recovering, but we are sufficiently knowledgeable that we would like to share some of this knowledge on our own turf with another country. And USAID pays for this, but by later in the 60s, the Korean government will take over the payment. So they're very much about um, becoming a t taking over the teaching role and then, and then even assuming the financial role. So again, very interesting, very early um, Korean ambition to share their knowledge with other countries. Yeah, so that actually answers my question because I, I was always kind of wondering as Korea, now we can say that Korea is a developed country. Yes, uh, I couldn't, couldn't give a definition, but somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, being that back then they were a developing country and you're like, like you said, they're still recovering from the aftermath of the Korean War. Uh, sure, under the, you know, we've talked about this in the previous episodes and how much Korea started growing under the Park Chung-hee administration, mm -hmm. but still, uh, for them to assist another developing country didn't really make sense. But to yeah, say because that because Korea is still receiving right, huge right, amounts exactly. of aid at this time, that's exactly to make it clear. Yeah, but you were saying that it was uh, they weren't funding this. South Korea was not paying for this not in initially. the beginning, so it does work out in that case. But they are paying for it by the mid to late sixties, even when they are still recipients. So it's a very again a very weird, interesting choice to make. So how does this pairing relate to again? We talked about ODA, the Official Development Assistance, and the the story behind all of sure. this. Sure. 
Um, it relates in a couple of ways, but I think this story makes it much earlier than the normal story and much more complicated. The normal story, certainly, that I learned as a graduate student was the late 80s, early 90s, Korea democratizes. Uh, Koika, for those who don't know, Korea Overseas International, begins in 91, and that's the beginning of Korea's rich country. We are now a donor country. Mm -hmm. This places that story as being a donor of roughly 25, 30 years earlier, um, when Korea is still receiving large amounts of aid, which indicates that one can at least have the ambition and begin. It, it's not simply about um, of columns of figures and adding up. The calculus is more about building long-term relationships, about establishing certain kinds of, um, I, I don't want to call you know, how, how do we stand in relation to you? How What can we get from you and vice versa? And I guess, yeah, it, it, the now language Quirka likes to use is we went from a recipient to a donor. This complicates that by showing that, that even when they were a recipient, the donor role was... It was already happening. Uh, it, it shows that what it means to be a developed country is not a clear-cut thing. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, it complicates all these things in an interesting way. Most of those definitions, I should say, by the way, come from political scientists or social scientists and historians love to complicate these things. So you guys are at odds, <laughs> basically, with these the political scientists. So, so, yeah, not not in a bad way, but hopefully in a more intellectual way, having a conversation about yeah, this. Yeah, so I, that's just, just the thing. I mean, if, you, if you're not a historian like myself, if you're not a political scientist like myself, and you're seeing from the outside, and all of this looks very confusing sure. right and so and I, and I know I mentioned uh, South Korea being a developed country sure. but that is a, a terminology that I use because I was ta told that sure 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 uh, and, and, and I have no and I have right, trouble right, that's and, very and, much the popular discourse and there is no other background as to why I just right. know that there is and looking at the economy and so forth but the fact that again uh, the, I, the the definition of a, a a developed country does not necessarily only mean that you're a donor country because right. again as a uh, developing country South Korea was and also a do and donor and it's not country. a clear cut thing rather yeah. it's a series of different metrics and it's a conversation a debate about we could have about sure when this happens yeah let's talk about what uh, KOD Co Kotko Kotko would be how you'd be pronouncing this is sure. the Korean Overseas Development Corporation what, what is this I'm, I'm sure. here for the first time yeah Kotko is very interesting Kotko is the predecessor agency to Koika oh, okay. Koika is 91 Kotko is 65 to 91 in Korean it is the Hango Kewe Kebal Gongsa and what Kotko does, basically, you probably know the famous case of the nurses and miners that go to Germany in the early yes, 60s. Yes, yes. Okay. So Koreans are starting to go overseas, and the Korean government realizes for the first time, wait a minute, we have a valuable quantity, human capital, mm -hmm, expert mm -hmm. workers. Kotko, as far as I understand it, its basic mission, although officially it's the development arm of the Korean government, is to act as an informal labor broker. They t now, the, the German program has already started mm -hmm. in about 63. But the thing that I'm mentioning here with countries like Kenya, and then more importantly, obviously, Vietnam is happening and the hundreds of thousands of workers will start to go to places like Vietnam. Kotko will give them classes. Kotko will train them. Kotko, in theory, is responsible for their passports. Um, it's, it's, it, it technically does not hire the workers, but it places them in other countries so that you can begin to see that 
by the late 60s, Koreans are in places that we expect, like Vietnam and Germany, that's mm-hmm. well known. But also to follow with Kenya, there are a small number of Koreans in a place like Uganda. There are Koreans in lots of other places that you wouldn't necessarily expect because Kodko is placing doctors, nurses, miners, more low-level workers at the beginning. But obviously, as you know, moving into the 70s with oil countries like Saudi, Iraq, and Iran, these will be fairly well-skilled, sometimes Korean engineers who know a lot about the petroleum. Um, Kodko is doing all of this through the 60s. 1970s in a way that's if, as you just said a lot of not a lot of people have heard about it mm-hmm. but it was very much behind the scenes kind of um they have the advertisements are great the late 60s the advertisements in english say things like better tech something like better technicians cheaper labor they were essentially saying we're a developing country we have lots of labor <laughs> take us yeah exactly. cheaper we're cheaper no, and honestly and the, the people they're beating out for a lot of these jobs because it is a competition at least with the american defense industry they start to push out filipino and you know workers that the americans had known for a long time and yeah, yeah. i remember uh talking to my mom and uh, what it was like when she was studying in school and she said uh, the second language that she had to learn. Oh, sorry. The third language. Second wow. Language. Okay. Second language she had to learn in school. And this is, again, like 1960s Korea, right? Okay. 1960s, 1970s. And uh, she said German. Yeah. yeah. Was what that. she had to learn. If that's mid 60s, late 60s, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah because again, she was, the, the government was pushing for sending a lot of nurses to Germany and Absolutely. things like that. And men were sent as minors. And so if you're interested in the field of nursing or mining, uh, it's maybe good to learn German. And, and just to give you an example, if you know it, but it's worth saying, do you know what their Wirtschaftswunder is? I have no idea. Sorry, it yeah, it's the German uh, economic miracle, of the Rhine. That is the vocabulary where the miracle of the Han comes ah, from. Okay, miracle of the okay. Rhine is probably late fifties, early sixties. Um, at some point, someone translates it and transmogrifies it, and I mean, there are other narratives to that, but that's one of the stories about where the miracle of the Han comes from. Interesting. Oh, Park Chung, he, um, Park Chung, he loved the West Germans. He saw how they recovered. <laughs> um, this is where you see the pictures of him going to the Audubon and he's thinking, wait a minute, uh, Kyungbu. You know, I mean, it's a couple years off, but he, he, he borrows a lot of things from the Germans. The West German, interesting. Yep, the West Germans, absolutely. Late 50s, the German economic miracle. Right. Uh, let's also talk about how South Korea sought to guide or control the movement at this time, though. Sure. Um, obviously, you want these Korean workers to keep in touch with home. You want them to be sending currency remissions, even as you're protecting their rights. Not every Korean worker wants to do this because, like all of us, we're good people, but we don't necessarily we don't want to cheat on our taxes. But you know, if, but if no one's like paying attention, we might. Right, right. So, like for example, in Vietnam, um, which is most famous, uh, there are lots of cases of Korean soldiers who are coming off their your service uh, and instead of immediately coming home, figure out, wait a minute, I can still stay here and immediately switch to a private job and you know get a lucrative more pay than I could get back home. They don't necessarily keep in touch with Kodko and tell them, by the way, I just left the military and now I'm in a new job. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they switch jobs, which is called jumping, and they don't always tell Kodko, by the way, I just switched to a new job, which has higher wages, but I'm going to keep sending you the lower remission. <laughs> Things like this. Um, this is obvi- it's not the- Kodko is definitely not the Korean internal revenue, but they are, in theory... Uh, on the good side, protecting your rights, advocating on your behalf if you're a minor, making sure the Germans take care of you. But on the other side, making sure that you come home properly, making sure that you behave properly, and probably making sure that you do remissions and pay your taxes. And not every worker has full incentive to do that. I, it's just, wow. I You know, that's the one aspect that people don't really talk about is that, again, I mean, aside from, yes, opportunities and working in a different environment, but also making more money yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is one of and, the things. Um, there's a, I'm forgetting the name of the but someone wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I like this, arguing essentially that 
No, as you just said, more money. But he called Vietnam. He's like, it's like the first generation of Koreans to work in international settings and learn what it's like to work for companies that are not run by Koreans. Mm -hmm. So he argues that in a weird, interesting way, besides the combat troops, the thousands of people who worked in Vietnam got international experience, depending on how you want to define that. Right, but they right, did. Right. They were working for people who were not Koreans, didn't speak their language, and had to learn how to make those companies happy. And they pulled it off very successfully. Okay, so I, I'm guessing that there would be a high demand a large number of people that want to go overseas, sure. uh, make the make a lot of the foreign currency. But how was Korea able to mobilize the workers or the technicians, though? Okay, sure. Um, I don't know how much, again, Kodko wasn't responsible for hiring, but they certainly recommended. So I'm just starting to get into this myself. There are lots of pictures of people showing up at recruitments. They had classes. They actually obviously told them about what it was like to go abroad because for this generation of Koreans, most of them had never been abroad. Yeah, yeah. So my guess is they're checking, they're calling, and they're probably making sure that these people have the baseline capacities for the particular jobs that they're being sent for so that obviously the foreign companies, countries will still ask for more of them right. rather than sending them home and saying, wow, you guys really said they're, they're They're definitely um, identifying and carefully picking the people that... Um, the other phrase they use um, in, in English in their ads is matching the men to the jobs. They see themselves <laughs> as a clearinghouse for matching Koreans with overseas companies. Yeah. Are there maybe some other similar examples for African nations and uh, their, their relations with South Korea at this time, too, not just yes. Kenya? Yes. Um, by the late 60s, there's something that's called the Africa Dispatch uh, Doctors Program, and that's roughly 68 when, again, the situation with North Korea and South Korea and the UN has become even more intense. So from roughly 68 to 70, South Korea starts developing these medical exchange relationships very intensively, okay. clearly for the purpose of establishing exclusive diplomatic relations with these countries. Uh, Gambia, Lesotho, I'm just giving you a few of them, Uganda, 64, that's earlier. But particularly 68 through 70, there's a large a large number of them. And it's things like ambulances, a couple of doctors, but it's clearly about, we will send you these people and these materials if you will in the UN say, yeah, these guys are the exclusive, <laughs> this is the only, and this, this is, I mean, this is not a small thing. I mean, it, 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 there's it's a big. real competition between, because the North Koreans also do show up and they say the same thing. Um, and this goes on probably through the early 70s, but at that point, it's really important that in the UN you have as, by the way, this is not just the two Koreas. Um, Taiwan and China go through some of this as well. Right. Uh, and I imagine, although South Vietnam no longer exists, I imagine the two Vietnams probably did this and the two Germanys probably did this. I, it's I, Cold War competition. I, I'm just picturing it right now in the UN, right now in, in an era, in 2024, the back and forth you're going is North Korea, stop developing nuclear weapons, stop shooting yeah, missiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we have the right to protect ourselves. But back then, it's like, we're back, the real Korean. No, no we're the, the real Korean. And this was, but this was not a joke. I mean, it, it obviously oh, was man. a real, because let's face it, we now understand that in, as you said, in 2024, North Korea is seen as the kind of, you know, bad Korea or certainly the nuclear Korea that's dangerous. But in the 60s and the 70s, North Koreans had a better economy. They did. They did. They right. had just as many. They had, not, they had not yet defaulted on international loans, so they were still an, an international economic player. Um, we, we, we could not know then what was going to play out later. Yeah, uh, th that's the one thing that many people don't realize is that now we consider North Korea as one of the most impoverished nations in the world. 
But back in like the late 60s and the early 70s. Through the mid 70s, yeah. Yeah, through the mid 70s, their economy was actually larger than South Korea. Very much. But my thing is, I, I love the whole idea of, hey, let's say we're going to be sending you uh, doctors and send you ambulances, sure. but in exchange, you know, go to the UN and, you know, take us side uh, when, you know, people argue about who the real Korea is. But at that time, though, I wonder if there was. Because Korea boasts some of the best medical system in the world now. Okay. Right. Uh, but at the time, in the in the, the mid '60s and so forth, was it to the point where they were able to send doctors and ambulances and oh, so forth? Um, I'll put it this way: if I if I understand the implications of your question, one, it probably came at a cost to the Korean medical system. Okay. And two, yes, this is the first generation of Koreans going abroad, so it is partly true that they have the ambition of representing Korea and being kind of cutting edge, but it's also partly rhetoric because you have to say these are our best and our brightest, and they're going abroad. Yeah. Um, I guess the other way to put it is too, because this is a little bit outside. But if I can mention, um, the even before the African thing, uh, obviously the first generation of Korean doctors to go abroad is the ones that go abroad with the troops to Vietnam in sixty four, sixty five. So there are Korean doctors uh, who are actually getting field experience um, again, surprisingly early, um, because they are taking care of Korean soldiers in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. They're right out there in the field, and they, these guys learn very quickly because they're dealing with uh, contingency casualty. Um, surgery almost on a regular basis. And we see that until today. Don't oh, we? yes. The, the, we have, the Korean medical missions now yeah, are yeah. fairly normal thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so like... All this the, is the origins of right, it. Right, exactly. exactly. And in all the things that we talked about, even including, again, and I'm very familiar with the whole, uh, you know, the nurses being sent to Germany and things like that. And because, you know, I talk, my, ner my uh, aunt who's been a nurse for like 30 somewhat years and you know she's she said oh, the, my dream was to become a nurse and go to germany and things like that now that she's was, um that was a very desirable oh, form of yeah absolutely and she became a nurse but you know by the time she became a nurse it was like 1990s and uh, you know she she got a job at uh, now the the largest hospital in all of korea and been working there for like okay. over 30 years okay but the the whole idea that uh, you know, nurses being dispatched to other, it still happens because I know that like in countries like even in the United States, there's a shortage of nurses. Sure, sure, sure. And being that nurses here in Korea get paid so little, they like to kind of take exams and uh, you know sure. go over to the United States where I mean nurses are getting. My this is no, this is the famous case of labor migration in very yeah. select industries. And the interesting thing about the Korean case, and I'll to talk to your point, is that Korean nurses um, did originally go abroad more often, but Korea became rich enough where that has not become a path dependent situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the Philippines is the famous case where Philippine nurses and doctors continue to leave the country. Uh, and that's interesting why Korea is and is not the Philippines, whereas it once looked like the Philippines maybe 50, 60 years ago, it no longer, any in, in many ways, no longer looks like the Philippines at all. Yeah. The nurses being a perfect case. All right. Uh, again, an interesting Korean history lesson that we uh, delved into today. Always learning something new. Uh, Professor Demoy, I want to thank you very much for coming in today. I want to wish you a happy Lunar New Year. Thank you very and, much. Uh, we'll and see you too. Say book money put We'll see you next week. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.